When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Welcome to New Scientist Weekly and welcome to a special bonus episode recorded at New Scientist Live in London. I'm your regular host, Rowan Hooper, and for this bonus episode, we held two packed out Ask Us Anything sessions when the awesome audience at New Scientist Live at the event, they rocked up and literally asked us anything. So we're presenting here an edited highlights reel and it really was anything goes. We cover dark matter, plant consciousness, 3D printed food, elephant emotional intelligence and black holes, lots about black holes. So I hope if you asked a question, you'll hear yourself on this. On the panel, there's me and fellow New Scientist journalists, Sam Wong, Abby Beale, Tim Revel, Kat Delange and Carmela Padovic-Callahan. And first, you're going to hear from the editor-in-chief, Emily Wilson, answering the first question, which was, what is the coolest thing you've learnt at New Scientist Live? The cool thing that I actually learnt yesterday is those Boston Dynamic dogs are only £150,000 each, which I think is quite cheap for them at the coolest robots on the planet but also a colleague told me that they send them into nuclear power stations and when they do they have special little dog booties and dog coats for the for the robots so that they don't get radioactivity all over their nice clean shells <laughs> uh, that's Michael Fat. what have you learned that's been really interesting at the show uh, so I learned from um, Simon Clark's talk this morning that um, there was a Chinese polymath in the 11th century called Shen Kuo I think and he was the first person, we think, to first person to record that um, he realized that the climate had changed since the past. So he discovered fossilized bamboo in a place where a bamboo could not grow. And he realized that there must have been a different climate there in the past. And that was about a thousand years ago. So as far as we know, he's the first person to realize that the climate had changed long huh. ago. Um, something that blew my mind today was uh, Nick Lane's talk on uh, the evolution of life. And he hinted at some new research that he hasn't actually published yet that shows that the genetic code itself could have arisen from just biochemical processes, from just stochastic processes. Um, and we, we understood how life might have potentially ratcheted out of chemistry, but the code itself might also be related to that like in that way and I think that's an ex it was just an extraordinary thing Tim cool. 
I think the coolest thing I learned today was that at the bottom of the Mariana Trench, this like big trench in the Pacific, the pressure is so high that it's equivalent to an elephant standing on every square inch of your body. Wow. <laughs> and if we went down there as humans, it's so high pressure, our enzymes would stop working. Uh, Yet, despite that, most of the life is all like fluffy jellies and things. It's yeah. really crazy. What's inside a black hole? Yeah. <laughs> so a black hole is where there's just so much mass that a lot of the equations that we use to describe them break down. It's like so unbelievably dense that it just becomes a singularity, almost like a nothingness. And what's there, we don't know. What do white holes uh, like do? Because I know what black holes do. They like suck up anything that goes near it. But what do white holes do? Okay, so white holes are a big subject. And I know that Carlo Rovelli wrote a piece, uh, who's a very famous Italian theoretical physicist, wrote a piece for us, and he said, white holes are what black holes are in the future. Now, I don't know if that helps you, but it was very poetic. Does anyone else have a better answer about what white holes are? So we've, we've never seen a white hole, so it's only a theoretical idea, but we suspect they're sort of black holes in reverse. So where a black hole sucks stuff in, white holes sort of spew things out. And where a black hole sort of goes forward in time, a white hole goes backward in time. And am I right in thinking that a black hole could turn into a white hole? Potentially there's like an associated white hole with every black hole. But it's, it's just an idea, we don't know. Yeah, so it's kind of the edges of everyone's knowledge. My question is uh, regarding the infinite. Why we cannot have a, a right definition of the infinite, yeah? And also, why we cannot measure the infinite? So we can, we can define the infinite. From a point of view of mathematics, we can define an infinite, and we know that there are different kinds of infinity too. So like the simplest one is you think of the counting numbers, you know, one, two, three, four, five, six. You can keep going until infinity. That's called the countable infinities. But then there are other sorts of numbers that we know too. For example, fractions. You know, between one and two, there are an infinite number of fractions. So what sort of infinity is that? It turns out that's the same sort of infinity. You compare the fractions up with the countable numbers in a like there's one for each one of them way. So that infinity is the same size. But when you get to the decimal numbers, the ones that you can make by saying naught point and then whatever you like, it turns out you can't do that. So that infinity of the real numbers, the decimal numbers, is a bigger level of infinity. Whoa, a bigger infinity than I the other infinity. We recently ran a cover story about the eight kinds of infinity. Yeah, so that when it comes to infinity, there's actually an infinite number of infinities. No. And we're still actually trying to understand what these infinities are. And one of the basic questions in maths at the moment is called the continuum hypothesis. And it's about whether this infinity, that I, the two that I've described, this first level and this second level, it's whether is there an infinity in between them or is, is that the next step in the ladder? And the answer is we actually don't know at the moment. Maths isn't strong enough to find an answer. Great question. Um, There's one question over here. That, yeah. All right. How many zeros are in a Googleplex? <laughs> so there's a uh, it's like 10 to the power of 100 is a Google, and then a Googleplex is 10 to the power of a Google. So uh, there's a Goog the answer is there's a Google number of zeros <laughs> in a Googleplex. Why does Pluto not count as a planet? Yeah. <laughs> Why not? Why doesn't Pluto count as a planet? Is um, it was deemed to be a dwarf planet. So um, it's too small. I think the definition is uh, something has to be able to, big enough to clear its own orbit of debris. And Pluto is too small to do that. Its gravity isn't big enough. 
So it's downgraded and uh, made to be a dwarf planet. And there's lots of other dwarf planets in the solar system. But obviously, it's a very controversial. People felt very upset when Pluto got you know, kicked out of the planet club. Uh, a question here at the front. Are elephants more emotionally intelligent than humans? Are elephants more emotionally intelligent no. than humans? It depends which elephant and which human. I think, <laughs> you're uh, I think that the short answer is probably no. But I know there's some amazing research looking into elephants and we're discovering more and more about how they communicate. We did a, an article recently about an elephant dictionary and all the kind of um, movements and actions that elephants do to communicate that we previously thought were just kind of, you know, animal behaviours are actually a kind of language. So there's loads of research into how complex elephants are, but they're probably not more emotionally intelligent than humans, I reckon. No, but um, I, I had a friend from Sierra Leone and he told me that in his village they once caught a forest elephant, a young one, and they kept it in a, a cage made of wooden spikes, you know, in their village. And one night the herd of elephants broke through into the village and busted the, the cage open uh, to rescue their, their family member. So they, they really missed, there's a very tight-knit group, you know, bond between elephants uh, and there's a lot of communication, like Kat says, between them. So they're, yeah, they are amazing animals. So it's a great question. They are fascinating animals, but I don't think they're, you know, quite up to human level. Is it true that bananas are conscious? <laughs> oh. <laughs> yeah, I haven't heard that that rumor. I mean, plants themselves, I think you could argue, have a form of consciousness, but a single banana. Probably not. But a banana tree might have something that would qualify as consciousness. Yeah. But then we're getting into really difficult territory as well about whether the banana is dead or alive and at what point you would count it as dead and you would count it as no longer having the consciousness of the banana plant, right? So it, it, you're opening up a, a really big can of worms there with that question. Well, we should do a cover feature we, on this. We yeah. <laughs> Banana we did, consciousness. We did, a, we did a cover story quite recently about are all plants conscious? Uh, and how do you, you know, it all gets into consciousness being something that's really, really hard to define. And people argue about all the time. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com Why does my blood look blue in my arm? Why does your blood look blue in your arm? So, you know, the hemoglobin is literally a lump of iron in your blood cells, and when it reacts with oxygen it turns red, 
And when, you're, when you use that oxygen in respiration and you strip out the oxygen, it turns blue because it's lost the oxygen. So, and then it, then so it goes... So that's the blood that's going up to the lungs. Yeah, and then when it goes back through the lungs, it gets reoxygenated and turns nice and red again. Where can you find dark matter? So we think everywhere. We think it permeates everything, but it, do, it doesn't really interact with us and particles so in the same way as everything right else. Here, right now, around us. Maybe, yeah. But it's very, very hard to detect. So. But no one's ever detected it, have they? Apart from the gravitational impact of it. Yeah, we only see the effects of dark matter. Yeah. So it could be, you could be full of it right now. How do we know that the speed of light is the fastest as is possible to travel and minus 270 something degrees is the coldest that's possible to go. Is it just because we haven't found anything that's colder or faster than that? Mm, good question. Well, we have got an article coming up in our holiday uh, issue about researchers who are probing sort of the coldest of the cold. So watch this space, I don't want to give it away. But how do we know that... Uh... Yeah, why do, what, how do we know nothing goes faster than the speed of light, Tim? So okay. nothing goes speeder than the faster light comes out of like Einstein's theory of relativity. And the faster you go, the more your mass, like the things that make up your body, turn into energy. And so the speed of light is when all of your mass has turned into just simple energy. So you've got no mass left to convert into energy, and then that's the speed of light. On the temperature thing, one of the simple ways to sort of understand it, which sweeps quite a bit under the carpet, but the temperature is sort of how fast things move. So when you're thinking about like a hot substance, all the, all the atoms inside, they're jiggling about really, really quickly. Well, there's a point when those things stop moving, and that's minus 273 point whatever it is degrees Celsius or zero Kelvin. What's the most feel-good story, science-based story, that you've come across in the past month or so, maybe outside of New Scientist? The idea that, so, you know, the Inflation Reduction Act, $750 billion that Biden got through Congress, turns out that's going to be, that's going to transform the US economy over the next couple of decades. And that will bring the rest of the world with it and tr just transform the entire world economy and, uh, and I think drag it into a, a net zero place. And that small amount, relatively small amount, 750 billion, has had that nudge effect that has, will have an outsized effect. So I think that's an incredibly positive, hopeful thing that we can solve the biggest problems that we face. I wonder if the panel could comment, do you have a favorite stone tool? Oh, what a beautiful question. <laughs> <laughs> well, my favorite stone tool here is that on Wessex Archaeology stall, they uh, have got a uh, Neanderthal axe. Whoa. Uh, the end's broken, but probably broken in antiquity. I think it's like 250 million years old or something insane. In your trillion dollar book, in the talk, you said at the end something about a lot of land, like the size of the US, that we could plant trees in. How much of that would you like to see planted? Like, oh, what do yeah, you think I mean, that, that, that figure I mentioned was the amount of land that is apparently has been mapped that could be planted with trees, and the amount comes to the area of the, the, the whole United States. So apparently that, that you could theoretically go and just plant trees around the world on that area. So, I mean, that, that's great, but I think what would be easier and more effective is to protect ecosystems that we've got that are a bit degraded and allow them to regenerate. 
just naturally, then it's much cheaper and actually more effective, and it will still draw down loads of carbon and regenerate that, that ecosystem. So if you do that on a big scale, you could do it quite cheaply, I think. And so I, that's what I'd love to see happening. Hello, everybody. Hello. What is your favorite new discovery about an animal? Well, uh, there was a, we did a story in the last week about a sloth that has a head exactly like a coconut. It's called a coconut sloth. I would very much recommend the coconut sloth. I sent a picture of that sloth to every single person in my phone, and I don't even cover animals. It was just a very good sloth. What is one of your favorite articles that you've written for The New Scientist? My favorite article I've written for New Scientist is um, I volunteered to be in a clinical trial of psilocybin, which is um, <laughs> the compound in magic mushrooms. Another not family-friendly um, one. <laughs> and uh, no, it, it, anyway. It was um, science. It was science, science yeah. Um, and I knew that I would either be getting a placebo or a small dose or a large dose. And uh, after taking it, I was pretty sure that I got the big dose. They told me later on I did get the big dose. And it was a very uh, amazing experience. Uh, which I was able to write about, which was very, a great privilege to be able to do that for my job. A, a great story that won't require me to give a half-hour lecture on quantum mechanics was the story we did about anti-bubbles. So bubbles are air encased in water, but you can go the other way around. You can make an anti-bubble, which is like a membrane of air filled with a liquid. And if you shake them, they can live up to a couple days. So we ran this story on uh, record-breakingly long-lived anti-bubbles, and that was a, a very fun story to report because bubble scientists, they're out there and they're very fun. Hello. Um, my question is, will we be eating 3D-printed food at home like in our lifetime? Uh, I, I kind of hope not, <laughs> actually. I hope we're eating lovely locally grown vegetables and things. and not, you know, I don't want to live on the enterprise and just eat gunk that's come out of a 3D printer. But having said that, we might be able to make some really cool things with a 3D printer so that they, they're not just like horrible goop, like bodybuilders drink, yeah. you know, but actually some really cool structure that you can make some new kinds of things. So yeah, that would be... But even if they're not like printed in your house, I think we are going to eat really super different things from the things we eat now by the end of your lifetime anyway. I wonder if um, cultured meat is going to be done with 3D printing. So, you know, people are working on trying to grow meat in the lab so that we don't have to get it from animals. But one of the difficult things is creating structures that are large enough with blood vessels so that you can grow something like a steak as opposed to something that's just sort of minced. Uh, meat or that kind of thing. So I, potentially 3D printing might help with that, but I don't really know. Mm, that's a good, mm. good point. Yeah. What science fiction technology would you most like to be brought to life and why? Oh, I don't know. It's between time travel and warp drive. I think time travel. I think the worthy answer is like, you know, unlimited clean power. Oh, maybe uh, yeah. sound bad now. What I would like <laughs> is an enormous spaceship to hove into view. I think uh, sometimes you see this like in cyberpunk novels where you can just like have a USB port behind your ear and when you need to learn a language or something, you just like plug yes. in like a database. I would love to be able to do that. Like I would love to learn like Spanish in 12 hours or something. Mm. Yeah. And to fly a jet or whatever. Or to fly a jet. Yeah. yeah. But then I have to have a jet. Yeah. <laughs> I'd like to be able to travel through a wormhole. I think mm. that would be quite good. Cool. Wow. 
Uh, might be quite lonely on the other side, though, might uh, Yeah. Maybe. If you um, had a power, what would you choose? The power to make um, people who have real power do the right thing. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> so worthy. <laughs> um, I would like the power to uh, talk to animals. Ooh. I was going to say that too, because I'd love to be able to talk to my dogs. I'd like to talk to whales and stuff yeah. like that. Oh, All your dogs, great. yeah. Um, I would like to not sleep and not be tired at the same time. <laughs> I'd like to live longer. I'd like to live many lifespans. Hi, uh, reading as a subscriber to New Scientist, this concept of consciousness comes up quite a lot. And it seems that there's a general acceptance that it can be scientifically defined. I was wondering if we could have a straw poll amongst you and see if you agree that it can. Yeah, I mean, it's sort of become like a pillar of our business model because we, that so many people are interested in consciousness. There's so many competing theories. And we, I think we did um, a story quite recently about whether consciousness, rather than being a kind of something that comes out of life is actually a fundamental part of the universe that exists everywhere as you know you know like gravity there's also consciousness i would agree that it's very difficult to define but i i also agree with um anil seths uh who's a, a neuroscientist in uh, sussex i think and he says that even though it's this very big difficult thorny problem we can change consciousness in various different ways and if you break down consciousness into the different ways in which it can be different and then look at what's causing each uh, aspect of it to be different, then we can start to get at, get towards understanding it a bit better. But yeah, as a uh, defining the whole thing and saying whether this is conscious or this is conscious or not is um, yeah, harder, harder to do. I think the whole problem's been um, kind of derailed by philosophers who've struggled massively with it, but never actually defined it really specifically and that's what Sam's saying that Anil Seth is trying to do just break up various components of it and look at well how do you explain that bit how do you explain that but if you look at it uh, if, you, if people talk in an airy way about what is consciousness like what is the hard problem of consciousness this is a philosophical problem and people get struggle up with it I, th I think and that's what makes it so difficult you've got to sort of find something that you can actually investigate scientifically and not philosophically and then you might get somewhere and, and that's what's really interesting about what Anil's doing. Yeah, I think it's, it's worth like saying that science is always an art of approximation. A lot of our definitions are not perfect, but this is the project of science is to work with a definition, learn more, redefine your definition, learn more, redefine your definition. I think saying that something cannot be defined sort of defeats the purpose of what science tries to do, right? A lot of you know, I'm, I'm a physicist by training. You would think that physics is very concrete and very well-defined and very rigorous, but everything becomes fuzzy if you get philosophical enough about it. So it's sort of in, in the nature of what we do or what we want to talk about that, that you have to have a working definition, if not the definition. Uh, listen, thank you all so much for your brilliant questions. The best thing about the show for us by a million miles is uh, meeting all of you and you're all amazing, the best audience in the world. Uh, thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. That was us attempting to answer, with varying degrees of success, a fantastic range of questions from our readers. And as Emily said just then, one of the greatest things about New Scientist Live is meeting you lot 
and the people who love science. So thanks for coming if you did come. If you didn't, you can go to newscientist.com slash live to find out how to watch on Catch Up. We'll be back for the regular podcast in a couple of days. I'm Rowan Hooper. Thanks for listening and we'll see you then. This podcast is produced by OG Podcasts. Find out more at ogpodcasts.co.uk.